Today's scripture reading is Psalm 48. The passage can be found on page 472 of the Pew Bibles and on the screens behind me. Please stand out of reverence for God's word. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This is God's word. Good morning. I, uh, this is my fifth sermon here at Westgate. I am not in the weekly groove like Rev Lev. So what that means is that I've been up here, I think, a dozen times to uh, practice. And reflecting on that, I'll say two things. First of all, it's it's really nice to be up here and see all of your faces. You all look great. And, um, you know, that is certainly true. And secondly, that while I have been in here alone on those former occasions, as you all know, I have not really been alone have I? Because our Lord never leaves any of us alone. So with that in mind, let's ask his help for our time in the Word together this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a word of truth. Lord, the Psalms are very special, and we ask the help of your Holy Spirit as we open the Word and look into the wonders of Psalm 48, which endures so, so much into our day today. In Christ's name, we ask this. Amen. So, I ask you this. What is your song? You process this for a minute. You, can, you might have a few. Pick one. But I ask you, what is your song? In that very popular television comedy of some years back, Seinfeld, Elaine's boyfriend, Brett, is so obsessed with the song Desperado, an Eagles song, that when he hears it, he freezes. He basically becomes a Desperado in Manhattan, mind you. And he insists that Elaine, the girlfriend, be perfectly still. She can't speak. She must observe his moment with this song. So Elaine tries to get him to turn this song into their song together. Brett doesn't go for this, and instead he gives Elaine her own song, another Eagles song, 
but it is the song Witchy Woman. The, the relationship fizzled out. So I have a song too, I will add. It's from 1979. It has a great lyric. I'll read some of it for you. Check out Guitar George. He knows all the chords, but he's strictly rhythm. He doesn't try to make it cry or sing. I'm going to pause right there. Now, aren't they great? Isn't Guitar George a great candidate for the praise band? Right? I mean, you need that steady, humble rhythm of a, of a, of a guitarist like that. that. That's what you're looking for. Continuing with the song, though, but, but an old guitar is all he can afford when he steps under the lights to play that thing. So, now it's time to play Name That Tune. What is my song? Who can name that soon? Shout it out. Sultans of Swing. And I will tell you, the dozen times that I came in here, each speaking to no one, each time I said to myself, Dave Owen will be the first to shout out that song. And brother, you have not let me down. True story. So when I hear Sultans of Swing, I am equally pathetic to the character that I just referenced. I freeze up. I go back to my Sydney University days, the beaches, the sounds, the age. I'm three times that age now. If you are around me when this song comes on the radio, please just allow me my five minutes and 47 seconds of patheticness. I will return to you in the real world after that. So to anyone that may experience this with me, I'll apologize in advance right now. But, but, there will be a day when Sultans of Swing is not heard anymore. It will fade away. God created music, and it's wonderful, isn't it? It's got so many great forms, and we can truly enjoy its many forms. Country music comes the closest to sacred. I look here at Royce Abel because he was able to, I happen to know he grew up in a New England family that appreciates country music, which is somewhat of a rare thing. So, Royce, I, I would ask that you thank your parents again this evening. I'll give you another example of this point of country music. Take the, the Buddy Jewel song, for example, that he wrote as a tribute to his mother. She's a certified WWJD fan, got an autographed picture of Billy Graham. She loves to hear the preaching at a Southern revival. She takes a custom-made blue suede King James Bible. Now the chorus. You ready? Sitting down? Yes, you are. She loves Jesus. She loves Elvis and me. I'd have to say that's pretty good company. I don't mind the fact that I'm number three. She loves Jesus. She loves Elvis and me. I got to hear Buddy sing that at the Taunton Elks Club. With about 75 one day. That was, a, that was a good night. So even Elvis, though, but even Elvis, though, is fading. But what you heard read by Beverly, our scripture re reader this morning, is not fading at all. Wouldn't it be great to have a song that didn't fade? If it is a song about Elvis or a truck or California surfing, or us, it won't last. 
But the most wonderful thing about Psalm 48 is that it is not a song about us. It is a song about God. And for that reason, Psalm 48 is truly enduring. It is sacred music. It is the word of God. It brings God's people to worship. The inscription of Psalm 48 is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So who were the sons of Korah? Well, those of you that were here last week for Psalm 42 heard how this group were choir masters, leaders of worship, which they were. I want to give you another level of detail. We learn of the Korahites in 1 Chronicles 9. Uh, These were the gatekeepers belonging to the camp of the Levites. Shalom, son of Korah, the son of Abiasaph, the son of Korah, and his fellow gatekeepers from his family, the Korahites, were responsible for guarding the thresholds of the tent, just as their ancestors had been responsible for guarding the entrance to the dwelling of the Lord. In earlier times, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, was the, office, the official in charge of the gatekeepers, and the Lord was with him. Zechariah, son of Meshelamiah, was the gatekeeper at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So do you see what's happening there? The Korites worked in the temple. They were gatekeepers. They were doorkeepers. They had a front row seat to behold the glory of God. What a job that would be. These were the Korahites, and these were the composers of this psalm. Psalm 48, along with Psalms 46, 76, 84, 87, and 122. I feel like I should say hike, but I won't do that. These are all called Songs of Zion because they are references to to Jerusalem as the city of God. So, what is Mount Zion? In the narrative of 2 Samuel 5-7, the stronghold of Zion is the name given to the Jebusite fortress that King David uh, defeated and took over to make into the capital of of of, uh, Jerusalem, the first the first capital. And the uh, United Kingdom lasted from 1050 to 930 B.C., 120 years. Zion then becomes, in the Old Testament, one of the names for Jerusalem, or more specifically, of the hill at the center on which, on which stood the temple built by Solomon. City and temple are the focus of thought of many psalms, a visible and tangible symbol of the people's devotion in the time of the Old Covenant. Let's look at some examples of these Psalms of Zion. Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. The emphasis is on the city of God, which infuses this group of psalms with the theme of the very presence of God. Zion is no mere earthly capital. The language of the psalms always portrays a universal rule. God is spoken of as the God of the whole earth, 
Zion is also timeless. It concerns the whole earth and the full span of time. Psalm 46 provides another example. 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So, Psalms of Zion are praise for the one God across the entire earth, across all of time. So now let's have a look. We're ready to have a look at Psalm 48. And we'll do this in four steps moving through the text. The first, in the first three verses, great is God. So think of the glossy travel brochures that you have seen. They make a place look so great, don't they? That you need to see it. Marketers understand the human desire to set our minds on a place in time to look forward to going there. We call this a vacation. So let's take a look at a few examples. You can take a road trip. You can explore Gold Beach. Or how about the Greek Isles? They look inviting, don't they? This looks great. I want to go there. Time and place are the key to how these travel brochures work. We want to see a beautiful place. We want to escape into a time set aside to experience it. And we look forward to these times. But, but, then, then it's over. It's behind us. However, the permanence of the beauty of the Lord has no equivalent. Psalm 48, 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. It is so crucial to praise God. It is an antidote for trying to make this life a song about ourselves. First things first, says the psalmist, praise him. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. At 2,500 feet elevation, Zion was not the highest peak in the area. The Mount of Olives is higher, and further to the north, Mount Hermon is much higher still. But the truly special attribute of Mount Zion was that God chose it. God chose it. The real beauty was the beauty of the Lord who had chosen to reside in it. Look at verse 3. God is in her citadels. He has made himself, he has shown himself to be her fortress. So the conclusion drawn is that the God who dwells in Zion is immeasurably great and will be a sure defense for all who trust in him. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Now let's look at the first of the two groups that approach Zion in the psalm, picking up with verse 4. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together, As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. An unspecified historical event 
is, it, is the context here. It could be a reference to the armies of Ammon and Moab who were defeated during the rule of Jehoshaphat. That reference is Second Chronicles 20. Or it could refer to the deliverance from Sennacherib during Hezekiah's time when the Assyrians laid siege to Jerusalem, but they never reached it. That reference is 2 Kings 18-19. to It could be another reference. We don't know for sure. But in any case, the language in verse 5 uses four strong Hebrew verbs which lose some of their power in the English translation, but they still pack a punch. They saw, they were dumbfounded, they were overwhelmed, and they fled in panic. The kings experienced pain as a woman in labor, and the shattering of ships is described. Now, the ships of Tarshish were the most powerful ships of the day. They were large, long-distance trading ships. It seems to be more than merely the military power of the kings that God is not impressed with, but also the economic system behind it. So that is the first group approaching Zion. Now the third section of the psalm, let's look at the second group which approaches. And these are the pilgrims. What, what is their response going to be? Picking up in verse 8. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever, Selah. When you see a Selah, that means this is, this is big, this is deep. Just kind of pause and drink this in, kind of like a whole note in uh, music language. We have uh, thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. So look at the beginning of this passage. As we have heard, so we have seen. The king's earlier that we referenced, they saw too. There's a reference to them seeing. But the same sight that brought fear to the one group thrills the pilgrims as they approach Jerusalem. They instead saw a city permanently established by God, offering them joy and protection. Notice also the change in pronoun. We the psalmist ramps up our enthusiasm to embrace his message by using the first-person plural. Now the worshipers address God directly, as we have heard, as we have seen. So, while verses 4 to 8 depict the futility of, the ta- of any attack on the city, now the assurance of security to those trusting in God is the message. The psalmist ponders the God who revealed himself through a promise, a covenant. And that's what you see next. The psalmist makes his point by using covenant language. Steadfast love in verse 9. Righteousness in verse 10. And judgments in 11. God's love remains steadfast, constant, in the midst of all human frailty and fickleness. The bedrock of Israel's faith. The God who reached out will not 
let them go. Which brings us to the fourth section of this psalm, which gives us true security in this life. Verse 12, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The purpose of this closing, as it is for many Psalms, is to encourage the worshiper to a greater faith and a more genuine praise. The visual used to make the point is a tour by military officers making an inspection of the city's defenses towers, ramparts, citadels. Look at verse 14. This is our God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us. He will guide us. So why, I ask you, why would we want God's guidance rather than following our own wills? Why would we want the song to be about God rather than us? Don't we know what we're doing? Aren't we pretty smart? I'll give you a list. Why? Is he not the one who created all things? Is he not the God who directs and governs all events? Is it not he who promised that all things will work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose? Is it not he who has testified in his word that our light affliction which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He is the one who knows the dangers and difficulties we face. He is the one who has provided everything we need to fight the battle of faith. He directs us by his spirit through his word such that we are never alone. Well, this list of reasons is why we want God guiding us, not our own wills. We want our songs to be about God. Look at the last word now. In the NIV, it says, he will guide us forever. The psalm concludes with a powerful statement of how permanent God's guidance for us will be. Now, this is a case where it's useful to look at how the Hebrew was translated. The original Hebrew had two words rather than the one word forever. The original Hebrew's words translate most equivalently into until death. He will guide us until death. So I've put the four, four versions up for you. you read, we read the ESV. The NIV translates, he will be our guide even to the end. The New American Standard, he will guide us until death. And the King James Version, used by Buddy Jewell's mother in the country song, uh, he will be our guide even unto death. So the footnote given in the New American Standard that I put up there for you holds the key. The, the, uh, he, the Hebrew scripture that was compiled in 132 B.C., that, uh, that was translated into Greek. That's called the Septuagint or the LXX because there were 70 translators that got together to get as close to a perfect translation as possible. They merged the two words into one word. 
And modern translators look back on, and they use that version too. So you, thus you have a variety of translations here. But I think that preserving the two Hebrew words until death makes for the best translation. And the reason for this is contextual, and it can be seen in the very next psalm. We're going to use Psalm 49. Psalm 49 is also a psalm of the sons of Korah, and it builds further on the theme of God's security at death by observing that God can ransom a soul from death. So let's take a look at it. Psalm 49, 5. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. And then verse 15 says this, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Selah. Psalm 49 is a psalm of where to put your trust. And the psalmist observes people trusting and boasting in their wealth. Psalm 49 is quite contemporary, isn't it? As you can see this happening in our own culture. Our economic system is concentrating wealth in a relative few, and that wealth can be used for good or not so good. Now, the psalmist observes all of this happening with the calm response of faith and makes two things clear. First, all, rich and poor, will meet death. Second, those who have trusted in wealth as a basis for their security are being duped. The point here that the psalmist understands is that only God can afford the price to ransom a soul. Only God can do this. Bill Gates can't do this. Zuckerberg can't. Warren Buffett can't do this. He can buy a railroad and make it profitable, but he cannot ransom a soul. Only God can afford the price. Now, we find in the pages of the New Testament how he did it, and I could go so many references this morning, but uh, I have picked out one. It is Matthew 27, so let's have a look at Matthew 27, which describes the events of Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So in the description, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. 
the curtain separated the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, from the remainder of the temple. Only the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year, the separation between God and man, something had happened to it. That's what's being described here. Jesus had broken the power of death. By the way, that is the one central point I, I prayed and tried to make at the, uh, when I was able to speak at the memorial service of my dad. Jesus had broken the power of death. The ransom that only God could afford was paid. And it is no surprise at all that this event would be accompanied by the raising of the dead of many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep. And can you begin to picture the sons of Korah who had looked forward to this day, praising God all the more for the revealing of his plan that paid this ransom for those who trust in him? So, what has happened to Zion in the past 2,500 years? What has happened to the temple? What do temple and Zion mean now in our day? Well, first we'll talk for the temple, talk about the temple a minute. During the first century, at the very time the gospel was spreading out from Jerusalem to Samaria and into the world, Jesus' prophecy of the demise of the temple was fulfilled. And this was the year 70 AD when the armies of Rome smashed the temple and all of Jerusalem to put down a Jewish revolt. Zion now has a very clear picture. It was always bigger than a geographical place. We saw that earlier in reading the other Psalms of Zion. Zion continues to be a reference for the city of God. We still sing out about it. It continues to call us to a response, calling us to live out each day of our lives as citizens of Zion, citizens of this city. Sadly, there is another option for people, the city of this world. According to Augustine, who lived at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire, to be a citizen of Zion, God's city, is not merely a a better counterpart to the worldly city, but it is an opposite society. Augustine wrote a book about this contrast called The City of God. His conclusion that the two cities have been formed by two loves, and I'll read what he says here, the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. The one lifts up its head in its own glory, and the other says to God, you are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. So what is our song today? And more importantly, what will it be Monday morning? Tuesday morning, and so on. May it be the song sung by the great cloud of witnesses that went before us. We just looked at Hebrews for the last six months here at Westgate. That is the beginning of chapter 12, that cloud of witnesses. Those witnesses, the psalmists, the prophets, Augustine, the sons of Korah, 
members of our family that have gone to be with the Lord. All of those who have looked to Zion, to God, for their eternal hope. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, the Psalms are beautiful, and they provide truth and help for us to live out our lives. Lord, help us make our song each day and hour and even each moment. May our, be, may our songs be about you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.